We can bring sacredness ritual to the things that we do in our life in a deliberate way. This can be from making your morning coffee, you know, soaking up the smell of the beans, the ritual of grounding the beans, whatever it is for you, you know, moving onto your yoga mat, having a cup of tea or calling a loved one. We can bring sacredness to our lives. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there. Welcome to Wisdom for Wellbeing. Today, we diving into spiritual wellness and what that actually means in terms of how we balance science, spirituality, and whether spirituality can be a secular practice. So I'd like to start off with a poem from Rumi. I really love this poem. It's a verse from A Great Wagon, and I think it might set the tone for our conversation today. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door still, where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. Just coming back again to those first lines. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing there is a field. I'll meet you there. This, in essence, is the question of today. You know, how do we get to that place beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, beyond these ideas, these thoughts, these judgments, these beliefs? This is really where spiritual wellness lies. This sense that there is something else, the ineffable, a transcendent element to this world. And given that Wisdom for Wellbeing is intended as an evidence-based offering, I'd really like to contextualize why I think it's important that we explore spirituality, secular spirituality. Perhaps you've heard of the biomedical model of health. This essentially means seeing health and well-being as strictly biological. It's the model of health that fits within the Descartian mind-body split, and it's very Western in its nature, and ultimately, it has turned out to be incorrect. Our mind and body health is incredibly connected, interconnected. Ultimately, our mind, body, and spiritual health 
are connected as a whole, so much so that we now conceptualize health from a holistic, biopsychosocial, spiritual model that recognizes the undeniable interaction between the physical, psychological, and spiritual aspects of our care and our ultimate well being. And as we move into this era where the mind-body relationship is more broadly accepted alongside recognition of the importance of our relationship, you know, outside of oneself, our relationships with family, friends, community, and even the physical environment, we're also seeing growing evidence that demonstrates that one's sense of spirituality enhances their health. You know, in the sense that it's there, it bolsters, it supports healing and maintains well-being. Now, we're going to be going into a couple of experiences I've had in my life to contextualize a little bit this conversation. And given that, I thought I would share a definition for spiritual wellness from the University of Victoria in Canada commonly known as Uvic, because when I look back, my own quest of meaning-making, of spiritual understanding, really took place in mass during my time at Uvic, during the days when I was there completing an undergraduate degree in philosophy and religious studies. So their definition of spiritual wellness is the sense that life is meaningful and has a purpose. The ethics, values, and morals that guide us and give us meaning and direction to life. It's a search for meaning and purpose in human existence, leading one to strive for a state of harmony with oneself and others while working to balance inner needs with the rest of the world. The key elements of spirituality could then be conceptualized as transcendence, meaning and purpose, connectedness, hope and faith. And it is these four elements that have actually been found to confer the health benefits that I was talking about earlier. So I'm curious, you know, how different do you think it would sound if I said that spirituality involved awareness of the present moment? and the ability to take perspective on yourself. The skill of openness, being able to step back from judgments of right doing and wrong doing in the mind, alongside stepping back to accept thoughts, feelings, bodily sensations and the like, painful as they may be, with engagement in your life, you know, acting in alignment with your heart, with faith and intention. You know, perhaps that doesn't sound too different, yet the latter is a quite simple definition that really displays, I think, easily the pillars of modern-day evidence-based psychological framework that we call acceptance and commitment therapy or acceptance and commitment training, depending on how it might be being used. So perhaps you can already see what I'm getting to here, that spirituality and science can be integrated. That it might simply be, you know, different lenses, slightly different languaging. And then perhaps if religious or esoteric belief structures don't align with your heart, you might actually be able to lean into a secular form of spirituality should you wish to. 
Because factually, it seems that a lot of us right now do wish to be more spiritual. Spirituality, and in fact, the desire to be more spiritual was highlighted as one of the top New Year's resolutions that individuals reported last year. Yet it doesn't necessarily mean praying or believing in the traditional sense, though if it does for you, that's brilliant. You know, in fact, individuals who attend weekly religious services will live an average of seven years longer than their peers, and this is after controlling for other lifestyle factors. So those are things like diet and exercise. So if you do have faith that you know this would suggest that it's worth finding a way to attend religious services and connect with other like-minded souls. And it's also the case that the fastest growing religion right now is no religion. So if for you, praying doesn't feel aligned, then you might lean more into secular spirituality, which is non-deistic belief in the sacred or supernatural, though it doesn't necessarily, again, have to be supernatural. And we'll talk about how we pair this back into a way that really allows you to cultivate your own construct of what spirituality is. And this is becoming more and more popular. You know, with that increasing New Year's resolution sort of demonstrating how popular or important we are feeling about spirituality, 25% of North Americans would now say that they're spiritual yet not religious. I don't know the stats in Australia, I haven't been able to find them. Though, it takes a little work to then figure out what spirituality means for someone. So I have this really interesting memory. My first philosophy class was an overview of philosophy, and naturally, in any um, philosophy 101 class, I am sure Plato and Aristotle would be covered. So we had in our class a quiz that was designed to figure out whether we were more... um, Platonian in our worldview, like a Platonist or more Aristilian. We might be more aligned with Plato if we are an idealist, really focused on what um, we can't see, the mental, intellectual, and spiritual. Um, Aristotle was what is considered to be an empiricist, you know, a realist. And this is really captured, just for those of you who might not have had the pleasure of a or philosophy, pardon me, 101 class diving deep into Plato and Aristotle. There is a painting by Raphael of the Athens Academy. It's in the Vatican. So back when we could travel in my case is when I got to see it live. But a quick Google, if you Google Athens Academy, you'll see Plato pointing up to the sky, up to the heavens while Aristotle is depicted in this painting as pointing down towards the earth, towards the tangible. We did this quiz and it was a fairly small 101 class and I scored such that I clearly believed something about what we cannot see, you know, the spiritual, this idealist framework, you know, the sense of connectedness to the cosmos, nature, spirit, I scored as a Platonist. And the lecturer seemed super puzzled by my result. Because based on everything I was saying, and I 
<laughs> I was very actively engaged in that class. <laughs> Based on everything I was saying, you know, he, he said to me, you should have scored as an Aristelian. You know, I don't understand this. Yet with hindsight, I am not surprised by my result. You know, while I had grown up in a non-religious house and, you know, had grown to really value and honor the wisdom of science, you know, the experience of joy when I transcend myself, my small self, my thoughts, my judgments, my memories, my plans, my beliefs, my ideas, the stories, that perpetual chatter in my mind. When I transcend that, it is such an immensely powerful feeling. And I think that that is what was captured in that quiz, you know, in that exploration of whether one might be an idealist or an empiricist. And beyond that, I also kind of call with hindsight into question whether we necessarily have to dichotomize whether it has to be an either or why not both you know could I not honor Plato and Aristotle and see the benefits in both ways of looking at the world because it's actually through my studies in psychology that I actually found this sense of place, of purposeness that allowed me to come to this both and, this place where I could integrate balance, secular, and a sense of spirituality, connectedness, transcendence. So there are a number of ways to capture what spirituality is, because this is a word that, you know, we're, we're using in earnest here. And while I want to keep this episode engaging and kind of calling out lists may not necessarily be the way to do that, I still want to share with you these nine elements. I think that it's important. So there is an experiential base belief that there is a transcendent dimension to life that is natural or supernatural. So an experientially based belief. This means it's experiential, right? And this is what I mentioned earlier, that I had had these experiences of being beyond the thoughts, the feelings, the bodily sensations. And in acceptance and commitment training act, a lot of metaphors are used to capture different experiences. And the metaphor that I think really captures this element of spirituality is the idea of a waterfall. When you are in a waterfall, that water is pouring on you and you cannot see anything but. When you step behind the waterfall, you can watch the water pouring and you can be stepping back observing. So you can be watching your thoughts, your feelings, your bodily sensations flowing like the waterfall and you can step beyond. And this to me is this experience of stepping beyond, this experience of stepping back into a sense of transcendence. So number two then is confidence that life is deeply meaningful and that one's existence has purpose. Life is deeply meaningful, one's existence has purpose. And you know, I, I guess in some ways I, I query this one because 
how do we know that life is deeply meaningful? And yet, what are we but meaning-making creatures? You know, life is meaningful because we choose for it to be meaningful. And that purpose that we have in our lives, that sense of meaning comes when we clarify our values, our heartfelt desires, what we want to stand for, and then act in alignment with that. That is where we find our purpose. Again, I am using ACT language to display, you know, this point. We also have a sense of vocation or mission life. Again, this is committed action. This is action in alignment with our values. And a belief, this is number four, that life is infused with sacredness. We can bring sacredness ritual to the things that we do in our life in a deliberate way. This can be from making your morning coffee, you know, soaking up the smell of the beans, the ritual of grounding the beans, whatever it is for you, you know, moving onto your yoga mat, having a cup of tea or calling a loved one. We can bring sacredness to our lives. Number five is not seeking ultimate satisfaction from material values. I would say material objects here to really clarify the difference of the material versus values that are these directional compasses as to how we live our life of meaning. And again, I think this pairs really well with an ACT framework, a modern psychological framework, because ultimately we all know that material values are not going to enhance our meaning and our sense of purpose in life. There's been a lot of research that demonstrates beyond a base level salary income that allows us to live safely in life, we don't experience any enhanced life satisfaction from increased income. Now, number six, and I want to caveat that because it, it's a base level, right? So individuals who are below this level of income will experience increased satisfaction in life from additional financial means. So when people are below the poverty line or below a specific line, they do benefit from increased resources. So this is why donating to causes to people who are suffering and struggling is important. Now, number six is a strong sense of social justice and a commitment to altruistic love and action. And this is often something that is captured in the values individuals hold. And then in committed action, we engage, we act with love, we do what brings us in alignment with our sense of social justice, our values in the world. Number seven is a visionary commitment to the betterment of the world. So idealism, acting to ensure we are leaving the world better for having walked on it. Again, values, right? Committed action here. Number eight is awareness of the tragic realities of human existence, pain, suffering, and death. Now this really fits. Because one of the most important things in modern psychological theory is that we do acknowledge our pain. You know, the difficult experiences that come with being human, the thoughts, the uncomfortable thoughts, the feelings, those uncomfortable emotions and bodily sensations. There's a saying, you know, notice, name, and tame. We need to notice these things. When we're aware of them, we can notice them. We can label them. It's noticing, naming, and ultimately taming. 
So I think this fits wonderfully. And then we get to number nine. Discernible, discernible fruits of spirituality affecting relationships to self, others, nature, life, and whatever one considers to be the ultimate. So in a way, choosing the ultimate is a choose-your-own-adventure. I would suggest that it comes back to values. But what's really captured here is that it affects our relationship to self, others, nature, life, you know, to these different life domains. And there is a questionnaire, the valued living questionnaire that allows you to categorize different domains. So the valued living domains in your life, you know, from relationships, um, romantic relationships, relationships with friends, family, parenting, our relationship with nature, our engagement in spiritual pursuits or different community action. When we get clear on our values or the fruits of our spirituality, this will affect how we show up in different important domains in our lives. So again, I think this all fits incredibly well in terms of an overlap between secular spirituality and modern psychological science. And going back to my one-on-one class, you know, this Plato-Aristotle divide that was posited at the time was interesting to me, but what was then most interesting to me was the Eastern philosophy elements covered in the class. And there we talked about something called the Atman and the Brahman. The idea is that the Atman is the essence of one's individual identity, Yet there is the Brahman, the unchanging universal consciousness which underlies all things. And the way the lecturer described it to me at the time that I think is really helpful, really visual, a lot like <laughs> looking back at, um, at the picture of Plato and Aristotle, another visual, that if you look at your hand, so you look at your hand and you've got your fingers and, you know, your palm. Each of us is like a finger, you know, the Atman, this individual identity. Yet as you follow the Atman down, you get to the palm and you realize that the fingers are not separate. They are part of this bigger whole and this is the Brahman. So essentially then, we are this small s self and the Brahman the full hand is this big S self, capital S self. And this really resonated with me. And while I wasn't able to place it formally until I found myself training as a clinical psychologist and learning about um, the thinking mind and the observing mind, which is very much reflected, as I said, in Eastern philosophy. This idea of the two selves really captivated me. So what we would then label this as in the acceptance and commitment therapy um, framework would not be the Atman and the Brahman. It would be, you know, the, the fingers might be your thinking self. 
And then the bigger part of you, the witnessing part of you, or this part that we tap into, perhaps all of us, is this transcendent part that we might call the transcendent self or the observing self. So this is the hand, the part of you that was there when you were five years old, even though we know that your cells regenerate every seven years and you are not that same person, you know, your whole worldview will have changed since you were five years old, your emotional regulation, the way you frame the world, nothing is the same. And yet you reflect on that part of you and you know that, yes, that was me. That is me, that five-year-old there. And then this transcendent part of you can also reflect on your wise mind part, you know, who you're going to be 10 years from now. So essentially, there's this part of you that can transcend space and time. You can use imagery, looking at yourself now, imagining yourself from across the room. And within the framework of ACT, you could use an exercise that might allow you to offer yourself compassion from across the room, you know, to really wish yourself well perhaps offering compassion back to your little self, that five-year-old self, perhaps integrating wisdom, understanding, advice by connecting with your older, wiser, future self. So this part of you is not fixed. It's not stuck in the here and the now. And this part of you, this ability to take perspective while not formulated in any spiritual sense in terms of being part of modern psychological theory, I think there's a parallel. And I see the benefit in keeping the spiritual and the scientific separate. You know, in terms of the culture we exist within, a culture that has historically been biomedically orientated, Whilst we now see the world and would suggest that the biopsychosocial spiritual lens is the highest grade um, through which we can look, and we beautifully value this lens when considering the scientific model, I appreciate that really anchoring into the scientific avoids snake oil, you know, what we might call placebos or considering allows us to really consider the evidence of different interventions and healings because ultimately you know whether it's medical or allied health when we train to be able to support individuals in their healing journeys we want to make sure and be able to evaluate the evidence for what we're offering and this is also at a time where I'm not oblivious to the fact that conspirituality, as it's termed, is becoming more and more prevalent and problematic. And I think it's important to, you know, call this out, to name it. So conspirituality is a term that captures a, a quite notable overlap of the spiritual community or spiritual frameworks with conspiracy theories. And it's problematic. So we need to make sure that we are able to maintain that both and way of integrating the scientific and the spiritual rather than falling into either or thinking. And if we align with spiritual beliefs, the sense of transcendence, that 
doesn't mean that we then need to be anti-science. You know, this doesn't need to be a binary conversation. The scientific and the spiritual can be respected and they can coexist. And in fact, Abraham Maslow, who was a pioneer in this area, he highlighted the importance of promoting existential well-being, arguing that spiritual values have naturalistic meaning and as such, they are the responsibility of humankind. So Maslow felt that spiritual, va spiritual values came within the jurisdiction of science. Maslow is actually one of the founders of humanistic therapy. As I said, he is a pioneer of Western psychology and the humanistic model um, model for spirituality defined spirituality as the breath of life. It is a way of being and experiencing that comes through awareness of a transcendent dimension that is characterized by certain identifiable values in regards to self, other, nature, life, and whatever one cons considers to be the ultimate. So it's coming back to the ultimate again. And this is the definition from Elkins et al. in 1988. So it's pretty long-standing. Now, what we need to be clear on is that the humanists are not necessarily talking about religious or supernatural concepts here. They are talking about vital living, an idea of transcending ourselves in life rather than transcending life, as Solomon puts it, who is the writer of spirituality for the skeptic. In fact, Solomon writes something really beautiful about spirituality, which aligns so much with the values-based vital living that we have been discussing in terms of acceptance and commitment training act. So let me share that with you. Solomon defines spirituality as the grand and thoughtful passions of life and a life lived in accordance with those grand thoughts and passions. Spirituality embraces love, trust, reverence, and wisdom, as well as the most terrifying aspects of life, tragedy and death. So ultimately, we are in a quest to navigate the inevitable suffering of being human, and I think that this really parallels, right? Because be it through religious, spiritual, or psychological practices, we are trying to navigate the suffering that comes with being human and to move towards a state where we can respond skillfully. Whether that is, you know, what we might term in modern theory as flexibility, if we can respond flexibly so that we are constantly creating meaning and purpose in our lives. I... I personally really love anchoring into and finding a sense of spirituality in psychology because with these modern frameworks, psychological skills are offered and they are immensely practical because they provide us tools to navigate the problems of being human. It allows us to do something action and to move forward both in acceptance of and moving through the suffering we face in our lives. So that's why I think these modern day frameworks can provide us such a sense of transcendence and honoring this observing self, this awareness, this witness, whilst living a life in accordance with one's heartfelt desires, with one's values is so powerful. 
so I would like to share a little bit more with you about the observing self because this is the term, the language that captures this transcendent part of us in psychological theory and specifically in acceptance and commitment therapy. And I will be diving deeper into this in times ahead, but just so you have a bit of a sense of it now. So this observing self is the part of you that is able to watch your thoughts, to observe your feelings and your physical sensations. Because if you're able to say right now, oh, I'm having the thought that, oh, I'm noticing the judgment that, you know, this episode keeps going, she keeps talking, or this is silly, or like this, this resonates with me. Oh, have I written my to-do list? Oh, I had the thought about the to-do list, or oh, I'm getting distracted. If you can notice and name what's going on, you are not your thoughts. You know, similarly, you can notice, oh, you know, I'm experiencing anxiety right now, or frustration, or joy, or awe. If you are noticing those experiences, you are not those experiences. You are something else. And I would say then, you are the observing self. So we have the thinking self, self with the small s, who notices or who has those private experiences, and then the part of you that observes and notices those private experiences, self with a capital S. It is through self-awareness that you are able to notice your private experiences. So with that in mind, then, your observing self is like the sky. You know, so some days there are clouds, other days there are sunshine, rainbows, thunder showers, mist, blizzards, rain. <laughs> the sky can hold it all. So while there can be lots of weather changes on any given day, you can step back and the sky in its ever expansive nature can hold it all. That is the easiest metaphor, I think, along with the waterfall to really capture the thinking self, the weather patterns versus the observing self being the sky that holds it all. So when we think of this then, if you can step back into this state of awareness regularly, you will increase your emotional well-being. You know, there's been numerous studies that have demonstrated spending more time in this state of the observing self, the transcendent self, whatever you want to name it, call it, offers benefits to emotional well-being. And it essentially frees you up from the fixed conceptions that you might have built around yourself or that have been taught to you over the years. And as you step back and sort of free yourself from these thoughts, these stories, these judgments about who you are and how you behave, you've become more and more free to then engage in activities that align with your heart, that align with your values. So it offers you increased flexibility to engage in the world in a way that is values directed. And all of those definitions that we were leaning into around spiritual spirituality, talk about action, action in the forms of altruism, being in the world in a way that is meaningful and purposeful for you and allowing you here, according to values, decide what is purposeful. So with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode 
and leave you with the thought, you know, could you over the course of the next week, just start to honor your sense of spiritual self in a way that feels aligned for you, whether that is religious, whether it is supernatural, or whether it is very secular. You know, there can be atheistic spirituality too. If you could find a way to create this ritual, this sense of purpose, clarity in your life, and could you start languaging in a way that allows you to tap into that transcendent part of yourself? You know, could you say, I am feeling anxious, I'm feeling sad, or I'm feeling depressed, I'm having the thought that I'm not worthy, or I'm having the thought that I'm not a good friend. You know, whatever it is for you, to name those experiences as feelings, as thoughts. I'm feeling sad, to me, sounds very different than I am sad because you are not that. Going back to look at your hand again, (laughs) you know, you are something else, something bigger, something transcendent. So if you can say, I'm feeling sad, or I'm having the thought that it's just a way of stepping back, buying yourself a bit of space, stepping back into that observing self, and using language to describe what is unfolding for the thinking mind the feeling mind, that self with a small s. All right, I will leave you with that. And if these episodes are resonating with you, enhancing, you know, your experience, action, way of being in the world in some way, I would very much appreciate if you could take a moment to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to these podcasts. It's super helpful in terms of getting listeners here and spreading the word. And if there is someone that you think might benefit from these podcasts, of course, feel free to send them off. If you'd like to be notified and to get my little emails around what is happening on the podcast and other musings, head on over to drcaitlin.com. You can not only grab the show notes, but you can sign up for the Yoga Nerds mailing list where I share my wisdom for well-being thoughts and my theories on mind-body connection and the like. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.